Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. In this episode, we begin to tell the story of the indigenous people of Chicago, Chicago land and the Great Lakes region. Who were they? Well, maybe you're familiar with their tribal names, which you might recognize from maps of the region. Ojibwe, Odawa, Potawatomi, Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, and Kickapoo. What more do you know about them besides their name? I certainly don't know that much. So learning more about the complex history of these Native American tribes is the subject of our exciting episode today. Just so you know, in the future, there will be more episodes on the subject, but we are starting with the early history of the region, and we will continue roughly through the War of 1812 today. So let's just start with some basic geography and place names. The name Chicago comes from a native word for a type of garlic that grows on the southern shores of Lake Michigan, where the city is located. The area around Chicago we refer to as Chicago land, and it consists of now the wider metropolitan area, which carries on north to Wisconsin, southeast to Indiana, and west to the cornfields of rural Illinois. Chicago, of course, is in the state of Illinois, and this word comes from a tribal confederation called the Illiniwek, or the Illini. The city of Chicago is located on the shores of Lake Michigan, and the huge region, which includes all of the Great Lakes, we refer to as the Great Lakes region. This area includes all of the territory surrounding Lakes Michigan, Huron, Superior, Erie, and Ontario. So let's dive into the history of the indigenous people of Chicago, Chicagoland, and the Great Lakes region. What was their life like before European settlers arrived? Why was Chicago important to early European settlers and explorers in the first place? How did they interact with each other? How did European powers begin to exert their influence over the region and the people in it? And how did the newly founded U.S. government begin to establish its power over the region and its people? These are huge and complex questions, I know. But fortunately, I have two fantastic scholars to help tell us this story. Professor Anne Durkin Keating and Professor Ted Karamansky. Welcome, Anne and Ted. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Likewise. It's a pleasure. All right. So Dr. Keating is professor of history at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago. She is the co-editor of the Encyclopedia of Chicago, so she knows literally everything about Chicago. <laughs> and she's the author most recently of The World of Juliet Kinsey, Chicago before the fire in 2019. And in 2012, she published the book, Rising Up from Indian Country, The Battle of Fort Dearborn and the Birth of Chicago. 
Dr. Karamansky is Professor of History and Director of the Public History Program at Loyola University in Chicago. He is a lifelong resident of the Chicago area and is the author of 10 books about Great Lakes regional history. His publications include the book Blackbird's Song, Andrew J. Blackbird and the Odawa People in 2012. So, Anne and Ted, where to begin telling this story, or maybe should I say when to begin? Well, one way to think about it is that Native people have been in the Chicago area since before the Chicago area is the way it is now, that when the landscape was being formed, there were still there were native people here as uh, the uh, glaciers were treated uh, and the Great Lakes were being formed. Native people uh, were along the margins of those emerging waterways. Yeah, and in fact, I think some of the more interesting archaeology that's being done is is submerged. It's getting at some of those early earliest uh, settlements in the area that are currently under Lake Michigan. That's very exciting archaeology that's being done. I mean, as Ted's noting, one of the big things for us to keep in mind is that uh, that geography is evolving, but the geography that's evolving has two, um, has a couple of really key components that anyone who's thinking about Chicago wants to be thinking about the, the physical, the geography of this region for much of the last well, for the, the last millennium at any rate. And that would be that we're on a break between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. So we're between two water regions, the, the Great Lakes and the Mississippi. So the area in and around Chicago is, is a break point, is a place of exchange, a place of between the Great Lakes and, and, the, and the Mississippi Valley. So that's one of the big, big, Things that I always have in mind as I start thinking about the people that then come here. And the other piece of this story is, again, in recent centuries, we're talking about, and, and, and be, before, what we've got is two ecological zones. So we've got eastern woodland from the Atlantic coast all the way out to um, the Chicago area into Illinois, and then the prairies to the west. Uh, Chicago and northeast Illinois are at that, again, another juncture, Great Lakes, Mississippi, Eastern Woodlands, and the Prairie. And I think those, the ecological zones and that geography really make for, uh, really tell us, they're they're important baselines for them, the people that are going to settle in this area, and what kinds of things they're able to do here. Yeah, Ted, do you want to add anything? Certainly, for the long-term development of Chicago, as Anne mentioned, that Chicago is a transition zone between two major geographic areas, between the two most important watersheds in North America, uh, but also ecologically. And the long-term development of the city, that's, the, that's going to be critical to its development. But even for Native people, for the, fir- for the fir- 12,000 years ago, you're talking about the first Native people in the Chicago area. And they are constantly adapting to an environment that's rapidly changing. So as those glaciers first move away, you're talking about people living, uh, in fact, the era would be the Pleistocene. This would be before the Holocene uh, that we are all living through now, if not the Anthropocene, uh, 
terms used to describe large periods of geological time. But you're having people come here uh, at a time when it's basically tundra uh, in this region and transitioning into boreal forest. And the creatures that they're interacting with are vastly different than the present. Uh, The megafauna of the Pleistocene era are critical to the early hunters and gatherers who are the first Chicagoans. What megafauna are we talking about here? Uh, Mastodons, mammoths uh, in particular, giant beaver. Those would probably be the most important ones from a hunting point of view. So the number that that I heard here was 12,000 years ago. So this is the end of the Ice Age. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So during the Ice Age, there are no humans in this area. So, so the first Chicagoans are coming up from the south into from the, the south Chicago and the west, area. Yes, they're coming okay. from the south and the west. Um, though we don't have great information about those about those patterns, they would be people whom uh, archaeologists uh, have called the Paleo Indians, and obviously Paleo referring to this being the oldest human group in the northeastern United States. Okay, so so this uh, group of Paleo-Indians come, and, and you've been using the word settled, and I never realized that uh, the Indians or Native Americans settled anywhere. I kind of was under the impression that they were largely nomadic in this area. So can you just talk a little bit about their movement patterns? Did they move during the seasons or did they settle in places? Can you talk a little bit more about their life patterns? Well, for this period of time, we have places where they undertook hunting activities. And so it's hard to estimate how long of a time they were in any one of these places. Uh, The Paleo-Indian people and indeed into the the, the next archaeological period called the Archaic Age are both periods of time in which there seems to be a fair amount of movement of individuals uh, related to hunting. We're talking about a period of time with a very relatively small population uh, of people uh, being able to exploit a large geographic area. Anne, do you want to add anything? Ted knows more about this time frame. When we get into the woodlawn and getting close to the historic period, then you start to see the introduction of farming. But that's, um, again, I, I don't know, Ted, have, are we to that point yet? It, sure. I mean, I think that's you know a useful way to move it along uh, because, uh, therefore, you're talking about larger groups of population. You're talking about cultures, in the case of, say, the, the Middle Woodland, cultures that seem to have evolved in the Ohio Valley and uh, in bringing lifeways and religious practices um, up to the uh, Great Lakes region. Right. So, so we have our Paleo-Indians, which are primarily hunters, I gather. Yes. And then we move on to what, what you're referring to as a woodland culture that, in fact, does have hunting 
and farming as well. So, uh, and you said this this might be getting towards the the history period. Well, then we're getting to about a thousand years ago, right? With the woodland culture, the Missis- what we sometimes think about as the Mississippian cultures. And as Ted said, coming from the Ohio Valley up the the Mississippi, so we have some sense. And again. I, I think what's one of the things for us to keep in mind is we're on this line between archaeology and history. And so um, the, 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 the intersection between those is, um, is fascinating and not completely, um, it doesn't match up entirely. Does that make sense? I mean, in the sense that what an archaeologist finds and can tell us and what a historian finds and can tell uh, us is are, are two different things. At any rate, the Mississippians would include the the culture at Cahokia. So further south in Illinois from here is a UNESCO site uh, closer to St. Louis. But that gives us a, a clear sense of a Mississippian culture a thousand odd years ago that that had farming, but also had evolved um, an urban culture that that involved a series of villages interlinked and had, um, we have evidence of, of the kind of, well, again, raising corn is going to become a part of this story, which is um, coming an introduction into the Illinois area. Yeah, earlier Native peoples uh, in the, the woodland period probably practiced types of gardening, moving from simply gathering wild uh, uh, fruits and and actually, you know, gardening them. But corn comes in with the Mississippian culture, and this provides a much more stable food base, uh, and that, as Anne indicates, leads to the beginning of urbanization. And the scale of urbanization at Cahokia and where uh, the whole region from where the Illinois River, the Missouri River, and the Mississippi all come together becomes uh, really a metropolis. Of, of really astounding proportions, unseen really previous to the to say twelve thousand uh, anywhere else in in North America, and indeed Cahokia, I mean at the top range of population for the metropolis of Cahokia uh, could be as high as forty thousand, might be as low as say twenty thousand, but that is as big as any place in Europe. Uh, yeah, that's, at the I'm, same I'm time. totally shocked. I'm, I, I had no idea. And and what what Cahokia? Where where exactly was Cahokia? It would be just east of St. Louis, Missouri, on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River. So that location was chosen uh, near the Mississippi for obvious transportation reasons, and also in a very fertile place for their growing of corn. Yeah, That's the fertility exactly right. is critical. Uh, yeah. it's, it's an area called the American Bottom. And to this day, uh, it, it's, it's renowned for the fertility uh, of its corn crops, where a lot of places will do one corn crop a year. They can do two, no problem, because of the fertility of the soil and the growing season. And that was why you had this congregation uh, of people and the development of a very hierarchical uh, society uh, that with uh, magnificent temple mound complexes uh, in in their in their towns. And what we have left of it are um, they're basically mounds, 
and that's the UNESCO site that is uh, is there at Cahokia. So it's it, it 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 we have we have now had archaeological work that helps us to envision what this these places look like, but that's that's um, I think one of the challenges to realizing just how big and how important this place was is that there's so little of it that remains in the landscape. Although Cahokia is enormous in and of itself, still the mound mounds there. Fascinating. Um, the the Cahokia we refer to as a place was it also a tribe? Or was it a group of tribes? Was it a single tribal we can't entity? Use, we can't use the term tribe to talk about these people. We simply don't know enough about them to ascribe any type of ethnicity. They are probably uh, the predecessors of many of the tribes uh, of the Mississippi area. They could be Caddo. Uh, they could uh, be Illinois. They could be a number of different groups. Uh, it's just impossible to say. Right. And part of that is, is language, right? Because language groups are often the way that we identify the tribal identifications are made down to the present is with is in language cultural groups. And those again, that line between history and archaeology, we don't have that information. So as Ted's saying, we can't make that kind of um of um the, the kind of evidence we've got is pottery, we've got uh, the kinds of religious practices that are left, the farming practices, and that's that tells a different story than the one that says this is, we can associate this with a specific tribe in the, in the historic era. But I, it's fascinating work, Ted. I, I mean, I find this line between um, history and archaeology to be one where there's just, there's, I think, room for a lot of um, important creative work to be done to make those linkages. I think what you, you're talking about, Ted, is in fact making those kinds of linkages mm -hmm. that we need, to, we need to see made. And one of the things that I think that comes up with, with this is, and perhaps you know, European listeners might be thinking that, well, these people in North America, they were just also primitive, that at a time when, when you had more developed civilizations in Asia uh, and in the Middle East and even in, the, in Europe, what were these people in America doing? And Cahokia demonstrates <laughs> that when they felt it was advantageous to develop dense urban civilization, they had the capability of doing that. But their population numbers being what they were, which was much, much uh, fewer than you would have found, say, in Asia or in the Middle East, and the rich resources of the North American environment did not put the stress. Every time you see the developments of, of, of major urban civilizations coming out of the Middle East region, these emerged out of environmental stresses where too many people were putting too much pressure and they had to change social organization. Native people didn't face those same stresses. And so they were able to live much simpler, egalitarian, cooperative societies. That's fascinating. Let's, let's make a jump, though, then from the Cahokia to uh, a little bit later to then the native people of Chicago. How do we tell the story that takes us from this Cahokia 
city and civilization, which is just maybe a couple hundred kilometers south of Chicago. How do we Mm -hmm. uh, go from this Cahokia civilization to what's happening around Chicago, maybe several hundred years later? Well, during the the Cahokia's part of the Mississippian culture, and the Mississippian culture comes to Chicago. Uh, They don't build giant cities, but they they built considerable settlements uh, around the city, particularly in the uh, southern section of the city, uh, in what we would know today as the Calumet region. Uh, There's several very large Mississippian uh, settlements there. We can't really speculate on exactly how many people lived there, but they they went ahead and had sizable villages, uh, large agricultural fields uh, that were typical of the Mississippian culture. At the same time, you had other people living nearby uh, who didn't focus their economics and society around uh, intensive maize cultivation. And uh, they were living slightly different style uh, lifestyles. And it, this is part of the one of the features of the Chicago area is that you have a diversity of lifestyles and you also have, because it's a transition zone, often people coming in, being there for a time, moving on, and another group of people coming in uh, and exploiting the area for a time. To Ted's point, you're seeing an increasing number. Again, in the, the in, into then we're starting to look at the, the 17th century, late 16th, but the 17th century, you start to see more Algonquian tribes, so Anishinaabe people, right, who are coming from the eastern woodlands into this area. And then we can start talking about groups that we have connections with to tribal identifications that we um, that we have assigned, whether it's um, the Miami or the Fox or the, then a little bit later the Potawatomi or the Illinois Confederation. And those groups are also, to Ted's point, moving in and out of this region. And it's a, it's a flashpoint for conflict, but it's also a place where a lot of different groups are going to overlay and be a part of the fabric of this area. And I, I mean, is that, I think that's a fair description of certainly the 17th century. So the 1600s are really a time of in and out of lots of different groups. Ted, do you see that? I'm curious about how you see that time period. No, no, I think that's well put. And so the first European accounts we have of Chicago, 1673, um, Jesuit priest Jacques Marquette, French Cour de Bois, Louis Joliet, they're on an expedition sent by the Quebec government, the French Empire government in Quebec City, to find a way to the Mississippi River. They explore part of the Mississippi River Valley. They're coming back up the Illinois River, and so they're the first Europeans to transition to transit uh, the area that's going to be Chicago. And when they're here, they encounter Illinois Indians. Uh, the people who inhabited the the Illinois River Valley from its mouth at the Mississippi River uh, all the way up into the Des Plaines River Valley, which, which is a tributary of the of the Illinois River, on the fringes of Chicago. That changes not too many years later. So when the Jesuits set up a mission in Chicago in 1796, 
then we go ahead and find an entirely different group of people mm-hmm. actually fairly densely inhabiting the Chicago area. The missionaries record that where the city, where downtown Chicago is today, they report there could that there were about 150 cabins of Miami Indians. And then a little further up the north branch of the river, an even larger congregation of Miami Indians. So just in a period of 20 years, you have a, you have a very significant change uh, in the ethnicity of the Native people who were exploiting Chicago. And, and by this time, these... Um these groups are um, seized. To, I think we we talked a little bit. There's a seasonality, right? There's a they're all gardening and farming to one degree or another. They're fishing. Many of the, these groups are are fishing. So a lot of the places where you're going to see villages will be um, at fishing at good fishing spots or good farming spots, and then hunting through the winter. So there's a seasonality to their occupation of places in in around the region and. That will hold, right? From from um, that that kind of seasonality is isn't is will hold through this this time period from the 1600s forward into into the uh, American occupation in the 19th century. Uh, but it, as Ted's pointing out, different groups, right? And this and claiming and there's conflict or not. I mean, some of this is just a reshuffling of orientation for groups. And sometimes there's actually fighting, like in, in the early uh, 18th century. So in the early 17, 1700s, you actually see fighting in and around Chicago um, between groups, um, the Iroquois coming from the east, but other groups. So there is conflict in that way as well. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about the the conflict and also the I guess we would call it the political structure. What what we know of the political structure, um, you mentioned Ted that there were say 150 cabins where downtown Chicago is, and then further north, more. I mean, those 150 Miami Indians there are they organized into a uh, hierarchical structure? Is there a chief there or a small chief? Um, how, how, how are they organizing themselves sort of politically? Uh, just to correct, we would probably estimate the population, native population of Chicago closer to 3,000 um, at that time. How were they organized? Uh, so these are Algonquian people. And so in terms of conflict, uh, I don't think you're going to you, – there, there's much conflict between Illinois Indians and, and Miami Indians uh, or even Fox Indians in the 17th century as opposed to a little bit later. Uh, right. They're, they're sharing uh, values. They're sharing world outlook, the way they exploit the environment. So the, the conflict, as Anne indicated earlier, really comes from – when you have native peoples like the Iroquois Confederacy or the Haudenosaunee, uh, as they called themselves, as they tried to expand uh, their influence, particularly in, in what becomes the fur trade, into the Great Lakes region. And there, there's a number of, of really violent encounters uh, that last for a generation, but not necessarily between the peoples that were indigenous to this area. Hmm. 
and and about the sort of their internal ignoring the conflict uh the intra native conflict um how how would they organize themselves within their own communities well most of them would have been organized uh with clans um which were designed to to go ahead and promote proper marriage <laughs> uh genetic practices uh as well as to provide kinship connections between villages when people were traveling and that they could always stay with kin who were of this of a similar clan there would be uh, family obligations there but you're talking about very egalitarian societies the it's vastly different than what you would see in something like Europe uh, where you would have a an aristocratic the organized society where where you would have a state uh with power to punish people on a criminal basis or for having alternate political or religious ideas there's no indication of this with native american society people lived the way they wanted to live now there would be policing of certain ethics of course but it was done more in a social way uh without the kind of force that that you see uh in Europe or Asia i always think about it in terms too of of ownership of resources that um there's control of resources amongst the algonquian people farm fields hunting grounds fishing areas but there is no permanent ownership land ownership just is um is a critical piece of power um, and maintaining power and it's just not there so that kind of idea of the territorial boundaries of any one of these these affiliated these affiliated villages that are a tribe don't don't exist they're fluid in a way that um is pos- is 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 uh, almost of necessity because there is not this idea of land ownership and that land ownership is a shift that comes in much later in our in our story so that that fluidity will remain in fact through a good part of the colonial period as well a good example of that is a quote from Tecumseh who leads the yeah. sort of last military resistance uh, against the United States but in talking to one of his american interlocutors he he says to him sell the land you might as well try to sell the air sell the wind to him it mm-hmm. made no sense that you could alienate uh the land uh to an exclusive control of of a person again as you're exploring chicago history it's one of those um things chicago the 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 modern history of chicago rests so much on land ownership and this is such a different world there are other lots of other denominators of that difference but that land ownership piece is one that um it makes land ownership makes a hierarchy possible and i'm i'm always struck by that part of this and tecumseh got it <laughs> <laughs> or i got it from tecumseh i guess more to the point i'm i'm thinking of some more modern examples of chicago history where land usage is a big deal i'm remembering migs field the oh. mostly <laughs> private airport that one one night uh, mayor daly decided to 
dig up so wealthy people couldn't use it as their own private way into and out of the city anymore. And of course, Lakeshore Drive, which uh, separates the residential area of the city and the lake, which means the lakefront would be always for the people, as it were. So maybe there's a little bit of uh, Native American spirit in modern Chicago city planning. <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> I, I wish that was the case, Andy, but I have I have um, very little confidence in that. I think the <laughs> the land ownership profit piece of this is and power piece of this is uh, is the story of modern Chicago. But that's that's off off our topic. I apologize. Yeah. Excuse me for being whimsical and romantic. Uh, having left Chicago, <laughs> I still, as with many immigrants, my my. Uh, perspective of the place that I left is, uh, yeah, let's just say we view it through rose-tinted glasses. Uh, but I wanted to go back to the conflict. So so, so this, this idea of, sh of the shared values of, for example, the Algonquin people. Um, and so there wouldn't be conflict amongst the various, I guess, sub-tribes of the Algonquin people. But earlier you mentioned the Iroquois coming by and expanding their influence. So I'm just trying to think, like if an Iroquois native ran into an Algonquin in the middle of the forest or something, would they immediately, like, fight? How did these different larger ethnic groups interact? Uh, so... Another of the major conflicts that's not in the Chicago area would be the Ojibwa and the Dakota. They also uh, had long periods of warfare with each other. But that doesn't mean if individuals encounter each other that this is going to immediately be fighting or anything like that. Uh, you do have some intermarriage back and forth between individuals. Uh, between Iroquois uh, and Algonquin peoples and between Dakota and Ojibwa. What the Iroquois, the Iroquois wars are caused by the introduction of the European capitalist system into North America through the fur trade. And when the Iroquois exhaust the uh, stock of fur-bearing animals in their own region, uh, they still want access to the things they could get through trade with the Europeans, particularly guns and gunpowder. And so they begin to undertake extended, very large-scale attacks on neighboring tribes. Now, this is, I would say, totally unprecedented, never happened before, and very rarely ever happened afterwards, where you would go ahead and have, say, a thousand Native American warriors journey hundreds of miles to attack another Native American group. And this would happen periodically uh, from the 1650s mm -hmm. through to about 1700, 1705. Right. Right. And the Iroquois have, are, are um, generally in the Northeast centered, I mean, we've got the Dutch at New Amsterdam and then, New, then the, the British at New York, and they are the they ally with the Iroquois Confederacy. And the French are coming into the North, and they will generally align, ally with the Algonquian 
groups, uh, although that's, that's, um, that's a rough skew. But it means that, as, as Ted's suggesting, that what you're you've got then is then the introduction not only of the fur trade being a catalyst for this fighting, but it also, uh, the trade items will change the way this, this fighting is done, right? With the introduction of different kinds of armaments, of weapons that are going to be a part of this. And the Iroquois, because they're early in this process, and also because they have this confederacy, are able to, they are successful in their attacks and pushing their area of influence larger and larger. I mean, in a lot of ways, the Iroquois are colonizing in advance of the European colonization that's, that's coming in into this region as well. So guns, right? I guess I haven't said the word, but guns will be a big part of this story or it will become increasingly a part of this story. I guess it's less at the outset, more as we go along. So, so in the, in the 1600s, the European settlers are primarily obviously on the East coast of, of North America and then interacting only with Indian nations or tribes on the East Coast. And I, I thought it was interesting that you said those those Indians might have been the first to sort of reveal that there was a totally different type of person, namely a European, revealing that information to the Indian ethnicities or tribal groups more in the Midwest in Chicago now. Would that be correct to associate um, this? Right. I mean, the idea that 1673 is when we first have written records of an encounter uh, with um, Marquette, Joliet, and and um, at the first, but one of the first is is certainly one way of of marking the beginning of that relationship between or an interaction between Europeans and indigenous people. But in fact, to your point, Andy, exactly right that 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 preceding that that encounter between peoples, there's encounters between uh, waves of, of information that are coming through and, and trade items and disease, right, are all, are all pieces of what's coming in advance of the actual encounter, the physical encounter between, um, the, between peoples, which is, again, a good portion of what the story of the late 17th century is. Okay, so how do how do we want to carry on then the story of Chicago? We've done this very big, long description. We started with the Paleo Indians. We talked about Cahokia, and we're kind of now getting into this idea of the the Miami people who are living on the southern shores of Lake Michigan. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Iroquois. We talked a little bit about Marquette and Joliet. Um, how, how do we want to carry on the story of Chicago now? What's the next big event? We said 1673 was the first written record of an encounter between a Jesuit missionary and a, an indigenous person. What's the next important feature of our story? Well, what you have happened, and we don't want to emphasize too much this idea of warfare, because one of the remarkable things about the Great Lakes region and the Chicago area is the very, very long period of time in which Europeans and Indians interact in a relatively harmonious way. So that if, say, let's just take 1673 as a beginning, 
you're talking about a largely harmonious interaction between Europeans and Indians until we get to the end of the 18th century. So at least 100 years, 120 years. And uh, another historian, uh, Richard White, uh, wrote an influential book talking about this. And he referred to this region with its long period of interactions uh, between Europeans and Indians. He referred to this as sort of the middle ground in which neither side was trying to exert a, a type of uh, economic or political dominance uh, over the other. Other historians say it shouldn't be a middle ground. It's really a native ground in which mm -hmm. the Europeans are forced to accommodate themselves uh, to the fact that they have a very small, light footprint upon the land, uh, and they are dependent upon the Indians uh, for literally their livelihoods. Right. And trade, it's trade networks, right? And and I'm, I'm, Ted is absolutely right. The trade networks that underlie this middle ground, the personal networks, that uh, cultural networks that are created during this time frame. Again, in an Indian country, a native, uh, a native ground is, um, is, uh, is what we ought to be emphasizing. This is a very long period of time in which French and then British traders and uh, missionaries were in this region, but they were, um, they adapted into indigenous life rather than um, European mores being imposed but in the in the main on them. I mean, I would argue, again, going back, because the Europeans who come into this area aren't demanding land in the kind of, in a wholesale change in land. They're looking to extract some resources from the region, and they want to claim the region vis-a-vis -vis other European countries, but they are not, they are not, they are not challenging the indigenous control of resources in this in this region in this long you know this this almost two centuries long time period and the dependence of europeans on indians is emphasized in the way in which they move across the land they're able to navigate the waterways because of the birch bark canoes that were invented by the native people who, and the native people build those canoes for the Europeans. Most of the Europeans for 100 years are using these craft, and they don't even know, really know how to build them. They're, they're having to buy them from the native people. This allows them to undertake journeys of six, seven, hundred, a thousand miles uh, uh, of trade. How do they navigate? Where do they, where do they make portages? Where do they move from lakes to rivers? This is based on knowledge given to them by native people. They're able to move around in the winter on snowshoes that native people make for them uh, or carry supplies on toboggans that native people make for them. And in the winter, when they're surviving in their trading posts, they're living on food brought to them <laughs> by Native American people. Uh, so uh, there, this is why the term uh, native ground, it's really, an, they are totally dependent on the native people. But there is a symbiosis uh, as well. They're able to bring valuable elements to native people who basically had what could be called the Stone Age culture, 
prior to the introduction of the fur trade. And that initial opportunity to have metal uh, tools uh, is what first drives the fur trade. Then later, they're able to bring in textiles, which has a revolutionary impact. And in the long run, becomes probably the most valuable trade item is cotton and wool textiles. So there's a connection to also the development of an industrial revolution in Europe through this fur trade. It's also uh, personal relationships because in, in large measure, the uh, European traders coming into this region will also make alliances with uh, indigenous families and, and villages through marriage. So they, they are connecting not only using the transportation routes and the, the forms of transportation are coming from the indigenous people in the area, but those men who are involved in this fur trade are often then marrying into indigenous families because then that gives them access to trade networks so that they then become a part of a specific group or clan and that allows them access too. I mean, and so it's through indigenous networks, not imposed networks coming from outside, which is just, um, you know, it's a very different world than a, than a vision of a colonial world would often, um, would often uh, lead us to think about. It's not, it is not a, uh, I guess there's no typical colonial world, but this is not one of imposition. It's one really, I, I, symbiosis is a wonderful word here that Ted used before. The idea of making connecting links between people and, and that native people are choosing what it is that they wanna take early on and whom they're going to incorporate in is, is uh, I think a really important part of this. Also, as Anne mentioned, this is built upon an earlier uh, network of exchanges. So if we look at some of those Mississippian sites, for example, we would find copper from Lake Superior. We might find seashells from the Gulf Coast. We might find obsidian from the Rocky Mountain West. Native people had been engaged with exchanges for thousands of years with each other. And one of the ways in which they would do that is when somebody from another tribe comes with something that they want, that person would be brought into a kinship relationship with the, the tribe they were encountering, often through a marriage. So there was these cross marriages that took place between very different uh, Native groups. And when the French come in and introduce this Europe, these European goods, it's the same process. As Anne says, they're building on an existing system of Native American exchanges, and the Europeans have to accommodate themselves to that. And so in, in Native, Native women play a particularly important role here. They're often providing the food the traders are going to be purchasing because they're doing a good portion of the, the gardening and farming, but they are more directly engaged as partners, spouses to these traders in this process. And they're also more heavily involved in the missionary activity that's taking place, at least from um, the estimation that we've seen is that it's in it's indigenous women that are 
accepting Catholicism or not from these missionaries that are coming through. And they also then play a key role in bringing, incorporating in what parts of that religion are going to become, how that religion is going to be incorporated into this indigenous world. Even though it's mostly men who are coming from, the, the, the coming from outside in, uh, maybe that's because of that, that they are, in, it, women have such a, a, an outsized role here to play in that part of the story. Um, it's interesting that that you mentioned religion. So I, I obviously understand why the Catholic Church or missionary groups are going to the so-called New World to convert uh, Native peoples, and and we also, of course, have this trade impulse. We want to, you know, the Europeans want to go to the New World to extract resources and all of this stuff. Why specifically did both of these groups, so the religious groups and the trader groups, why did they both choose Chicago, as it were, to to settle? Well, for a long time, they're not necessarily settling in Chicago. The Jesuits were here about five or six years with a mission, uh, and then they changed their mission locations to further north uh, in the Lake Michigan Basin. Same with traders. There's rumors of a of a fort that existed at one time uh, in Chicago. We don't know anything about that. So there could have been a French trading settlement for a time here. Instead, what you're having uh, is people transitioning through Chicago uh, mm-hmm. from the Great Lakes to the Mississippi Valley. The French presence in the, in the uh, Middle Illinois Valley, uh, say uh, 120 miles south of Chicago, would have been stronger than in Chicago itself. And the French presence would have been stronger at Mackinac Island, 300 miles north of Chicago, or in Green Bay, uh, say 220 miles north of Chicago. So Chicago wasn't a, a node of settlement until we get into the 18th, uh, excuse me, the 19th century. Right. I mean, and, and the French are interested one of the reasons why the French are interested in having some control here is because of where their other colonial holdings are. I mean, going to Canada and then Louisiana. So the Illinois country is a connecting link between those two. And I, th- I think that's a, another piece of this is that broader picture of North America that in which this fits. And, and that means that there's a value in maintaining those ties that you can bring the trade can be connected between Canada and, and Louisiana. So so in 1800, let's just take a date. In 1800, <laughs> the Europeans are more interested, say, in what's going on in Canada and in, in the s- south of North America than the, the Native peoples are. Um, by 1800, is, is all of this sort of European machinations going on, are are the native peoples in, say, 1796 or 1800, mostly um, not interested or not caring about this? Or are we already beginning to see, at least in the Chicago area, decisions made, say, in London or Paris uh, or Washington, D.C., beginning to affect their, their daily lives? It would be the middle of the 18th century where European uh, imperial ambitions begin to clash with the desires. Okay, so fifty of the years earlier, people. so seventeen fifty, let's say. 
right? Yeah, Roughly. yeah. Um, and Native people begin to make some judgments, either judgments that, hey, these British have superior manufactured goods uh, and give us a better price, and so maybe these are people we want to work with. Others saying that, maybe disagreeing with that and thinking that established relations with the French to keep the situation uh, in that, that they have now is better. And so they actually begin to send warriors to the eastern part of the United States to participate in these colonial wars because they're making a decision that one group or the other is, is better for them. So they, they have begun to be engaged in the imperial struggle for North America. Right. I mean, and, and the big picture here, right, is 1763, France as a colonial power is out of North America, right? They, 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 it's not that valuable to them. And so that's a part of that settlement. The French traders remain here. So, I mean, we, we see very little change in population in this region. But that means the British then have colonial control at the time of the American Revolution. And part of the American Revolution, to Ted's point, is about a conflict about what's going to happen out here in the West, and of, if we're thinking about the American, the British American colonies. And, and I'm back to land, because the British American colonies want to do something different with the land as they're moving West than this native ground, this Indian country, this colonial world that had been, that had evolved between the British the French, and a little bit of the American colonists, this was changing. So that after 1783 in particular, the Americans are looking to, to claim land, first in the Ohio Valley and then moving westward. And claiming land, not just they're going to claim it and uh, the native uh, culture, the native way of life can remain, but to remove, to actually draw a line between native peoples and, and these uh, American, now American uh, settlers moving westward. And that's just, I, I mean, to my mind, that is a dramatic sea change in this story. And it doesn't happen all at once, but really is something that's beginning, as Ted said, in this last, this the second half of the, the, the 18th century, both before and after the American Revolution. I mean, George Washington is out surveying, right, um, out near Pittsburgh to, that the war, um, the, um, the, in some ways, well, no, that the, goes back to the French and Indian War. I, I need that to be reversed. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. I mean, you know, George Washington begins the Seven Years' War that right. becomes really the First World War with battles fought in India, fought in the Caribbean, all across the European continent, including the German states. But that's a war that begins, it's begun by George Washington <laughs> going ahead and trying to project British power into the Ohio Valley um, in a somewhat disastrous fashion. And Wait, the initial... was, was he going after a French force or a French, a French and Indian force? Going over after land. He wants, he wants, they want to claim land and start selling land. It's a, he's, he's a, uh, he's a land, he's out there as a surveyor, his, his, He's working for a, a company out at the Ohio company that investors in, in Virginia want to own land. 
I, is that fair, Ted? I'm, I'm, I might be overstating that. Right. No, he, he definitely that was a personal interest that existed through his entire life to get control right. of land in the Ohio Valley. Uh, he he was a militia commander uh, and was ordered by the governor of Virginia to with to move the Virginia militia in there. But you know, it, it's significant that in those early battles of the of the uh, Seven Years' War, it's native people from the Great Lakes region, from the Chicago area and Michigan, who are inflicting major defeats on British forces uh, and making this a a really prolonged struggle. This is important to realize they had a political consciousness about what was happening. And so rather than fight a projected enemy when they reach your uh, neighboring village, they were going, we'll fight these people 100 miles away, 500 miles away, 800 miles away, if right. that puts us in a better position to protect our homeland. And there is nowhere in North America did Native people fight more effectively and more decisively at a great, such a great remove from their homelands to, to protect those homelands as in the Great Lakes region. And they offer the most effective resistance to American settler colonialism on the continent. So Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable, when I think about it on that backdrop, Ted, is an interesting figure because he's out of the out of Indian country, as uh, from what little we know for sure about him, right? That he is of African descent, that he may be um he may be coming from Illinois country. He may be coming from Canada. Originally, has he may have Haitian roots, um, all of that. But that he is someone who's born before the French and Indian War, and comes of age in these this turmoil of the the French and Indian War, and then the American Revolution. And by the time of the American Revolution, he's in this region. So he's a French speaking trader. And his, he is then caught in this battle between the British and the Americans. And um, he gets arrested by the British in, in, in Michigan. And he's going to then work for the British because, you know, I mean, it's not clear on whose side he is because I don't know that he needs a side because what, what, what's, being lo- what's being challenged here is his right to be in this trading world, to be a part of this trading world. And he comes to Chicago then, right, at the end of the Revolutionary War. And by 1790, we know he's here, and he's then established this first, this trading outpost that we identify as the first non-Native person to live here at at Chicago. And he, he, in many ways, embodies that. He doesn't own the land on which his trading outpost sits because that he's out of a world where you don't own land. You establish your trading outpost, you create your networks. He's married into an indigenous family. He has um, Métis mixed, mixed descent children, and he's living at Chicago in a mixed descent community in the 1790s. And that's a world where no one owns the land, where they're a part of this native ground that's real. I mean, so he's really is in a way. It's this last piece of that story that's fought, um, that begins to be fought hundreds and hundreds of miles away, but is going to then land finally at Chicago in the early 19th century. I think that's 
mean, I, I think that's a really important way of thinking about this is that this is a long war. I think uh, other historians have described this as the 60-year war, right? I mean, that this is really something that goes the whole of the, the late 18th century into the early 19th century in this region. And I think that's, um, uh, Ted is absolutely right about that the Native peoples in this area understand and are willing to fight for. You know, and that puts somebody like Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa into this story, I think, in an interesting way. So, Anne, you mentioned the date 1790, and let's just focus on that date for a bit because you mentioned then some other things too. So, so in 1790, when uh, Dusable, how do we If you're in Chicago, it's Dusable, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always learned it as Dusable. As as Dusable sets up this permanent trading post, it sounds like relations between the indigenous people of of Chicagoland and Europeans are starting to fray. At 1790, it's not all uh, unicorns and and rainbows. Well, the American government. Um, is fighting, I mean, their first battles after the American Revolution are out in Ohio, an Indian country, fighting to take claim to land in, um, in Ohio and then moving westward. And again, the American government wants those lands. So no, this has really changed. I think when after the American Revolution, the threat to this region in terms of land sessions to the American government, to the U.S. government, are are, uh, are clear. Yeah, just to, to back that up, 1790 is critical because, so the, you know, remember the American Constitution's approved 1789, it's, they write the thing, 1790 it's approved. So this is the actual beginning of the American Republic. And the first thing they do is they send an army <laughs> into no- northern Indiana, you know, 100 miles, 120 miles from Chicago. Uh, to go ahead and break up a confederacy of native peoples who are determined to resist American expansion. And so they in 1791, those Indians win the greatest victory, military victory, ever won mm-hmm. by native people in North America in what's sometimes called the Battle of a Thousand Slain. They completely destroy what's le- what there is of the American army. But eventually, the American army regroups. And in 1795, they force a treaty on Native people. And this is a, the Treaty of Greenville. It's negotiated in uh, uh, eastern Ohio. But it demands a session of land six miles square at what becomes Chicago, at the bottom of Lake Michigan, where the Lake Michigan and the Mississippi River come together. And uh, that begins the alienation of land. Uh, and, you, and you really see that what's the whole purpose of American, uh, the American settler colonial state? It's to get Indian land. And, and so that means that Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable's trading outpost at the mouth of the Chicago River after 1795 has been ceded to the U.S. government. And it's not surprising that DuSable, who has had enough trouble during the Revolutionary War, decides he's, first of all, he, does, he, he, he realizes the, the U.S. government, well, we don't know whether he realizes it or not, but he leaves 
shortly after this, before the arrival of the Americans to build a fort at at uh, the mouth of the Chicago River, and he he decamps for outside of St. Louis. He goes to Cahokia, again signaling this idea that we are really talking about a dramatic change in what this area is going to be because uh, now this land is going to belong to the U.S. government. And what the U.S. government is going to do with this land is once they control it, they're going to sell it. And they're going to sell it to private interests. And those private interests are going to transform this from Indian country into something very different. And so the the key date there then is uh, for Chicago history is 1795 when this six-mile, square-mile track of land officially becomes property of the U.S. government. And the implication, of course, then is (laughs) as far as they can spread their influence beyond those six miles, sooner or later, uh, all of that uh, territory will belong to the government. That's right. And I mean, we can think about it as something like an island, right, in Indian country, right, because that's where that, that parcel of land at the mouth of the Chicago River is only a, um, it, again, it's surrounded by Indian country, but the sessions, which are in Chicago, kind of, it, it starts to look, is being surrounded by these sessions that range all the way from uh, near St. Louis all the way around into Indiana. And they keep, they're pushing up from the Ohio River, they're pushing eastward from, from the Mississippi, they're pushing westward from Ohio, and increasingly, there's less and less land that's native ground. And it's into that picture, then, that you get Tenskwatawa and, and, and Tecumseh and the idea of um, we need to fight. We, an, another round of we need to stop and see whether we can, stop, it can, can halt this expansion by the U.S. government. And the U.S. and U.S. settlers in their way. Before we get to Tecumseh, just uh, factual question: Under whose authority, under which Indian authority, was that land given away? <laughs> was it a? Or do, is that a question I shouldn't ask? <laughs> no, it's 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 uh, definitely a good one because, uh, as far as I know, there were no native peoples from Chicago involved in the Treaty of Greenville negotiation. Uh, there were some Ojibwa and Potawatomi involved, but it's unclear that they had any connection to Chicago. And the, the, that treaty, there was a whole series of sessions that were made. Mackinac Island became a session, where Green Bay became a session. Uh, but Chicago was obviously uh, one of the key ones from the American point of view. And uh, to reiterate Anne's point, you know, in 1785, even before the American Constitution's created, uh, the United States sets up a system to alienate all the land that uh, is between uh, the Atlantic Ocean and the Mississippi River to turn it into private property. In 1787, with the Northwest Ordinance, they create a system to project their political system to these areas. So long before they have any shadow of, uh, of alienating Indian title, they've already made their plans for what this is going to look like. They think maybe in 100 years. <laughs> it turns out to work much faster than, than they thought. But they're thinking long term. Okay, great. So we've sketched out 
sort of, sort of the climate, uh, the political climate, the wider political climate, and what's going on in Chicago at the turn of the century. So let, let's take this up for the last, say, uh, 12 to 15 years of our story for today. We'll go from the um, this uh, session of land, which becomes officially Chicago, the six-mile uh, stretch of land uh, at the mouth of the Chicago River. And then we get to the War of 1812, and then we have Tecumseh. So can, can we just tell that story as our final story for today's episode? I, I think we need to touch on just one other thing before we get into that, and that is sure. we talked about the important role that Native American women played in this fur trade period. By the time we get to the late 18th, early 19th century, those intimate relations between Frenchmen and Indian women have created a whole new population in the Great Lakes region that is generally known by the French term Métis, M-E-T-I-S, uh, basically referring to people that are mixed. And so these are the children of Indian women and French men. Some grow up more attuned to the culture of their fathers. Some grow up totally in a Native American way. But they become cultural brokers, interlocutors, and really the key group that keeps this commercial exchange between Europeans and Indians going, even after the French Empire is, is gone, even after the British Empire is eliminated from the region. And so who's living in Chicago at, this, at the critical time, at the early 19th century? It's these mixed-blooded people. So that's an entirely new, unique ethnic group that is crucial to the transition from an Indian-dominated Chicago to a European-dominated Chicago. And they're, they're people who are most comfortable in between, right? They have this native ground is their world. It is a world that is of a mixture of European and, and indigenous. And that's to some degree is a problem in this picture because the US government is looking to create a line between indigenous world and a Euro-American world. And these are people who are neither in, in either camp. They are they they represent what in fact is a part of what's being lost here, potentially is being threatened by this world. And but as Ted said, they're around Fort Dearborn. Fort Dearborn is not surrounded by American farmers. It's surrounded by these mixed mixed descent people who um, they're they are not they're going to trade with Fort Dearborn and the people out there. But they're not look they are not looking for the Americans to come in and start subdividing land, particularly. But they they will take advantage of that too because they have some some of them will take advantage of that as well. I mean they're. They're making strategic choices all along here. And they really contrast with, is, with Tecumseh, right? And Tenskwatawa, who are really that nativist, that notion of nativism that we see here. And is and nativism meaning a return to what the world was like before European, there was this European influence. So mixed descent people are, are not a part of the world, the Indian world that Tecumseh is trying to build. In fact, he has some trouble with that. But Indian, indigenous good, indigenous or European, Euro-American goods have to go out. Bread, 
So bread made with wheat in bakehouses, which is one of the things that DuSable has as his house, is something that's kind of an anth uh, is is a re rejected outright by Tecumseh, right, and Tenskwatawa because it represents what? It represents the Euro the influence of the Euro-American influence on this world, and so you get Prophetstown, right? Tens the the village of Tippy Canoe which is about what 160 miles and how many kilometers is that from um from uh from chicago not very far it's about three hours two and a half three hours drive here now that means that chicago and fort dearborn are a flashpoint because at tippy canoe by the time that 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 fort dearborn is founded tippy canoe is emerging alongside of it as a center for this nativism that's going to fight the incursion of the American government. And so you get this, uh, you've got this, this flashpoint between them. It's not very far in distance, and, and it's where this battle is moved. From the East Coast, it's moved here, and it's between 1809, 1810, 1811, with the Battle of Tippecanoe, really starts the, it moves from a flashpoint into a war um, between the U.S. government and the, the alliance of, of Native peoples in this region. Can you just tell me a little bit more about Tecumseh in the first place, Ted or Anne? Well, Tecumseh and his brother, Tenskowatawa, are Shawnee men. And the Shawnee are a people that had gradually been pushed from Pennsylvania and Kentucky all the way into Indiana. So they have been repeatedly displaced by advancing European-American settlements. and But they are an Algonquin people. And so they, uh, the two brothers, uh, Tenskowatawa has uh, a series of visions uh, which propose, as Anne says, to go back to a more traditional Native American lifestyle uh, and that this will bring a certain amount of sacred power back uh, and the favor of the giver of life to the Indian cause. Ten, uh, his brother, Tecumseh, is, is a diplomat and uh, a great warrior. And so one works the religious side, one works the political side of a movement to uh, bring the Algonquin peoples in the, in the Midwest region together to fight uh, the advancing tide of Americans. And it's really, in many ways, the last stand uh, mm -hmm. of effective resistance uh, because they're initially very successful in their efforts. So that's who they are. When you go to a place like Prophetstown, it's organized by the Shawnee, but you have many Ojibwa there, you have many Adawa, you have many Potawatomi. This is where the Algonquins uh, are, are coming together in opposition. Where is Prophetstown again? Northeast Indiana, or North Central Indiana. So yeah, very very close to Chicago. So Tecumseh has his his movement, and would 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 we expect that the natives or these Metis, these hybrid people in in Chicago at the time, would they have sympathies for Tecumseh? Uh, I think some do. Uh, but I think the majority, not so much, <laughs> uh, because as Anne suggests, they are of a different sort. They represent something 
that Tenskowatawa, uh, in particular, is greatly opposed to. He is a purist. Uh, he is even opposed to native religious movements and practices that have originated, uh, you know, a hundred years before, but were not indigenous, but were influenced by European ways. So, uh, no, the uh, in fact, some of the most significant Métis, someone like William Wells, uh, who was a European uh, lad, captured. Uh, by the Miami Indians, raised as a, as a Miami, fought as a Miami warrior in a number of battles, he d defects to the Americans and will play a role in the Battle of Fort Dearborn in uh, 1812. On the other hand, Native people don't necessarily want to target Métis. And so the Métis kind of see themselves as, if, if, if this is going to get ugly, most of them just want to step aside. So, so they're going to be more neutral. So uh, you mentioned now here the Battle of, of Fort Dearborn. Let's, let's uh, tell the story now that goes from Tecumseh organizing his defense of uh, Native American purity against the Americans and so how does this all then uh, end up in violence in Chicago? Professor Keating? Yeah, I, I mean, I, in terms of the violence, I would say um, I would start this war in November of 1811 with William Henry Harrison's attack on, on Tippecanoe. So forces, uh, U.S. militia and militia units under William Henry Harrison come north and attack and destroy the villages um, in and around Tippecanoe. And uh, Tecumseh is not there at that moment. It's, um, and, and Harrison apparently knew that as well. He was off, um, Tecumseh was off raising support south of the Ohio River. But after that battle, the alliance under Tenskwatawa and Tecumseh really agree that they're going to um, they're going to fight against the U.S. forces in the region after, you know, in summer, uh, after the, the growing season. And um, so they, they are going to wait. The problem is that there is a great deal of animosity by the spring. And so you're seeing ongoing attacks in the spring of, of 1812 in and around Chicago. So there are some of the first, first violence comes in, the early, in early 1812. The intervening factor here. So we've got the beginnings of an Indian war in this region to end this story of a native ground in this region. And then you get the, the U.S. Congress declares war against Great Britain in June of 1812. So you get overlaid on this Indian war, a second war between the U.S. and Great Britain. And uh, maybe, maybe, Ted, you want to jump in here with that piece of the story and, and get us from June. After the American Revolution, the British expanded their colonial presence in Canada by going ahead and taking loyalist refugees, people who were favoring the Brit Americans who favored the British crown in the revolution, and settled them in Ontario. And the only way they could defend that frontier was through strong alliances with Native people. And so the British project military power throughout the uh, 
18th and early 19th century into the areas around Chicago. And so when the Tecumseh Alliance uh, makes the decision to fight the Americans, the British are going to be right behind him after the declaration of war. And so you have a strong alliance between red-coated British troops and Native American warriors, and they sweep across the Great Lakes region and pretty much just blot out. Uh, uh, they capture Detroit, they capture uh, Mackinac Island, uh, and in 1812, of course, uh, they force the evacuation of Fort Dearborn and defeat the garrison. Right. The, gar the garrison is told to retreat after uh, Mackinac falls to the British, and that retreat is ill-advised in retrospect because uh, leaving the fort was um, left the the uh, the uh, 90 odd uh, U.S. Army um, contingent against hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, Tecumseh allied Indians that are that surround them and attack. So Fort Dearborn is the attack on the the retreating garrison takes place on uh, the morning of August 15th. And uh, within a matter of hours that that uh, U.S. contingent is taken and Fort Dearborn is burned the, that, that evening. So um, it again, it, it's it's a resounding defeat for the Americans who retreat what who are left those who are left there retreat to Fort Wayne. Fort Wayne will hold um, in large measure because they do not, they just stay. They take being surrounded and eventually are able to, um, they, keep, they keep Fort Wayne. The problem of course is that it's winning this particular battle and these early, uh, these early events, but in the broader war, the British are not as good allies of Tecumseh and his, uh, his uh, and Tecumseh and his, um, his warriors as, as they expected them to be. Ted, did you want to add anything? The burning of Fort Dearborn was particularly significant because this was, you know, they built it in, in 1803 and in 1812, they burn it down and they see this as ending a intrusive military occupation of their homeland. And they're able to defend, you know, after pushing the Americans out throughout the course of the war, they're able to defend most of the gains they have. They do lose Detroit, but they keep Michelmackinac. They keep control of the Chicago area. And it's only the fact that the British betray them in the Treaty of Gent in, uh, in 1815 that ends the War of 1812. The British, instead of going ahead and uh, providing some type of settlement for their Native American allies who won most of the battles that the British end up winning in the War of 1812, uh, they go ahead and sign that peace treaty, status quo, antebellum, that everything goes back to the way it was before the war, giving the Americans the power to come back to Chicago and rebuild that Fort Dearborn. And begin the session process even more strongly so that in a matter of 15 years, the, the, the entire area has been ceded from uh, Indian hands into American hands. Like even the next year, 1816, they negotiate what's called the right. Indian boundary, 
where they go ahead and get an, an additional session, this time from the people who actually lived there, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, from the north side of Chicago down to the Calumet region, a large swath of land. And why do they want that land in particular? At this point, they think they're going to build a canal from Lake Michigan to the Mississippi River. So they go from not even having a presence in the area to a year later going ahead and projecting major infrastructure to to transform the region. And, and there you have it, basically the origins of what will become the modern city of Chicago. I guess I guess eighteen fifteen sixteen is the time frame, as you said, where the land is somehow legally, in scare quotes, legally ceded from the native people to, uh, I guess, Americans. And that is the end of our story for this episode. There's still a long history of Native Americans in Chicago, the Chicagoland area, and the Great Lakes region that we will discuss in our second episode. So I look forward to that. I certainly learned so much today about my history of Chicago as a, an American of European descent, but it's still a fascinating history that I think all Chicagoans and also all Europeans should understand. So, Anne, thank you very much for your input today. It was fantastic. And Ted, thank you as well. My pleasure. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Ted. All right. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.